0: Good morning, church. Yeah, Holy Spirit Encounter is this Wednesday, FYI. (laughs) Uh, I love Holy Spirit Encounter, though. It's going to be amazing. So I encourage you, if you have time and are available, come on out. It's going to be incredible. Uh, Anyways, welcome, church, to uh, week four of our series that we've been calling The Unveiled Kingdom. This has been our series that we've started this year with, and really the focus of this series has been the ministry and message of Jesus which is to say that Jesus didn't just come to be born of a virgin and then die on the cross so that we could go to heaven when we die. But actually, the ministry and message of Jesus was about the kingdom of God, which is every place that God is king, God is king over the world, but not everything is submitted to him as king. But Jesus' message was that the kingdom of God is here now that it is coming, it is growing, it is expanding, and God is working through his people to build his kingdom. See, so often in life, we, or or in our faith, we boil down Christianity and believing in Jesus to this concept of salvation. It's this idea we think of, if I believe in Jesus, my sins will be forgiven and I will go to heaven when I die. That's all true. That's all great but it's a reductionistic view of everything Jesus accomplished. You know, when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, and we're going to look at this in more depth in two weeks, but he taught us to pray not, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, Um, let your kingdom be established in heaven, let me escape from this earth, and let earth burn. Jesus never taught us to pray that way. Instead, what it says in Matthew 6 is he said, pray then this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is the statement that in heaven, God's kingdom is already manifest. In heaven, God's kingdom is already present. God is king over the world, but not everything on earth is in subjection to him as king. In heaven, it is. In heaven, there is no sin. In heaven, there's no sickness. In heaven, there's no anxiety. In heaven, there are no issues. Revelation 21, when it talks about the new heaven and the new earth, which is the goal of the kingdom, it's the end goal of creation. It doesn't talk about it in terms of, oh, the earth will get slightly better. It talks about it in terms of there will be no more tears, no more grief, no more death. All of this will be renewed. So, the message of Jesus is more than just salvation, believing in Jesus, and going to heaven when we die. It is a message about bringing heaven to earth while we're alive. But you see, the struggle. That, I know I've, I've, I've thought this way before, and I know a lot of churches have, have preached this way before. The struggle is very often when it comes to Jesus, we get focused on two elements of Jesus' life. That is his birth and his death. Christmas and Easter. Very often it's easy for us to just look at this, like Jesus was born, amazing! Amazing! Jesus died and rose from the dead. Amazing, so we can be forgiven. That's great. And in fact, most statements of faith, including the one that we we believe and we support here as a church, they focus on these two elements. Birth, death, resurrection. I guess three elements. But there's a period of time of about 33 years between Jesus' birth and death. And if we just focus on his birth and we focus on his death and what that means for us as people, salvation, we actually miss the full message of Jesus. We miss the life of Jesus. And so I was, I was reading a book in the fall and I'll quote it in a second here. It's, I quoted it last week. It's How God Became King by N.T. Wright. Um, but he was pointing out how we often, we focus on the birth and death of Jesus. And he posed this question. If the birth and death of Jesus are all that matter, why does the Bible include the life? Like if all we needed was for Jesus to become a human being and die on the cross, God didn't need Jesus to live for 33 years. Could have crucified a baby, as horrific as that would be. God, he could have done anything. Why did Jesus have to live? And so N.T. Wright, in his book, he puts it this way. He says this. He says, The great creeds, statements of faith, when they refer to Jesus, they pass directly from his virgin birth to his suffering and death. The four gospels don't. Or to put it the other way around, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to think it's hugely important that they tell us a great deal about what Jesus did between the time of his birth and the time of his death. In particular, they tell us about what we might call his kingdom inaugurating works. The deeds and words that declared that God's kingdom was coming then and there, in some sense or other, on earth as in heaven. So when we pass from birth to death, we miss the fullness of what Jesus did, which is he was inaugurating, he was bringing his kingdom to earth As it was, as it is in heaven. And what really, what I love about this quote is that it highlights this reality that the Bible, the authors of the Bible, the people who wrote uh, the Bible, inspired by God, they included what they did for a reason. And so if the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought it was important enough for us to know what Jesus did in his life, that tells me that it is important for us, that we need to focus on it. And so this is what we're going to be doing over the course of the rest of the series, is we're going to be examining the life and ministry of Jesus we're going to be looking specifically through the Gospel of Matthew. That's why we asked you all to read it this past month. So we're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the story of Jesus and how through Jesus's life, he was working to establish his kingdom here on earth. And I want to start this morning, just shortly after Jesus's birth in Matthew 3, to talk to you about the King is revealed. See Matthew chapter 3 is really it's the first chapter where we see Jesus's ministry taking shape. See up to this point in the book of Matthew in Matthew 1 and 2 it's been focused on his birth. Matthew 1, it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Then it goes on to talk about how Mary became pregnant with Jesus, even though she didn't do anything. It was from the Holy Spirit. How her fiancé thinks, oh my goodness, I got I to gotta leave her because she cheated on me. And an angel comes and says, no, 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 this is of God. Don't worry. And then Matthew 2, it tells us how when Jesus probably was around the age of two, how wise men came from the East to honor Jesus as the king of the Jews. But at that time, the current king of the Jews, the one who had been crowned king of the Jews by the Roman emperor, was like, "Uh, I've got a problem with this. And so Matthew 2 records how Herod, the king of the Jews, came and he tried to kill Jesus. But Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt after being warned in a dream. And when Herod dies, they return to Israel and settle in the city or in the village of Nazareth. But from that point, in the Gospels, Jesus kind of disappears for for almost like 25 years. Like We're not exactly sure how old Jesus was when Herod died and when he would have returned to Nazareth, but there's a period from between his birth and when his ministry started around the age of 30, where we have one story. That's in Luke. I think it's Luke 2 where Jesus is about 12, his parents bring him to the temple, they start heading home and he stays without them knowing. But all we know from this period is what Luke tells us, Jesus grew in favor before man and God. But there's this gap. And during this period, as Jesus is growing up, as Jesus is growing in favor before man and God, we see this man, a guy named John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, step onto the scene. And his ministry, his message, is to declare that the Lord is coming. That the King is coming. To prepare the way of the Lord, it says. And John's ministry, really quite simple if we were to boil it down to one point, was he went and he would baptize the Jewish people for repentance. Of their sins. Now what's fascinating about this is, is who John was baptizing. See, baptism in that day and age was about repentance. They believed when you got baptized, it meant all your sins were washed off. Typically in that day, they would make you get baptized naked. Um, we have baptism next week. Please, if you're getting baptized, wear clothes. We don't do that anymore. But there, it was all about repentance. In a, in a similar vein, nowadays, baptism, we believe it's, a symbolic, uh, it's a, a symbolic declaration of, I believe in Jesus, and as Romans 6 says, when we are baptized, we are baptized into his death, and as we rise from the water, we are, are, are partnering with him in his new life. So baptism, we understand, is a symbolic reality of the forgiveness we receive through believing in Jesus. As a side note, if you've never been baptized, but you're thinking about it, next Sunday, baptism service. We would love to partner with you in that and celebrate with you. Gateway.ac slash baptism, you can sign up. Um, Shameless plug. Uh, (laughs) But the Jews, baptism is about purification, and specifically, it was only done to non-Jewish people. And so, basically... If I weren't a Jew, I'm not. So so if I were to come along and be like, hey, I want to be a Jew, they would say, okay, come to this river, strip down naked, we'll dunk you in water, you'll be clean of your sins, and you can become a Jew. And so that was the process. But John the Baptist, he steps onto the scene and he is baptizing Jews for repentance. Why? As a declaration, a preparation of what Jesus was going to do. It was was this declaration, hey, you've tried with the law to deal with your sin on your own, and it's not worked. You know it's not worked, but there's one who's coming. As John says, there's one who is coming who who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The power of God was coming. The fullness of God was coming. The forgiveness of God was coming to deal with these things forever. But where we pick up the story this morning in Matthew chapter 3, John is busy baptizing by the Jordan River. And it says, verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Remember, baptism is about repentance. Hebrews tells us that, or I think it's Hebrews 4, tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in the same way as we are, yet without sin. What did Jesus have to repent of? Well, according to the Bible, nothing. But he comes to John to be baptized. It says John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fill all righteousness. And then John consented. Now, I always imagine, like, first thing we see here is John, he recognizes Jesus. Like, he sees Jesus coming and he knows this is Jesus. This is the Savior of the world. This is the one who is to come, who is greater than me. And when Jesus comes, and is like, hey, I want to be baptized by you. John's like, no, I need to be baptized by you. Okay, imagine it like if, you know, you were a janitor for a Fortune 500 company, and you're just doing your job, and one day as you're like mopping the floor, the CEO comes up to you and is like, hey, I need you to come into this really important board meeting. Our company's struggling financially, and we need your advice. If I were in that situation, I'd be like, ah, you know, I'm the janitor, right? You make millions and millions of dollars. You have like 12 people on your executive staff who all make millions and millions of dollars. You don't pay me that much. I don't think you want me there. And I always imagine that's kind of John's mindset is who am I? Like, I baptized for repentance. You're greater than me, Jesus. I need your baptism. But Jesus says, no, no, no. We're going to do this because this is what God told me to do. It goes on and it says, verse 16, when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw God's spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. The voice from the heavens said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, a couple things to note here. Again, Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not need to be baptized as repentance for sin. Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, notably, this happened in his ministry before he did anything. This was before he healed a sick person. This is before the wedding in Cana where he multiplied, or he turned water into wine. This is before he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is before any of his ministry. Jesus is, is coming and he's getting baptized. And what's notable in this passage is there's two key things that happen here. First is after he's baptized, as he comes out of the water, the heavens are opened, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Now, in the Bible, there are two major things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Where the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, lives in us, and where the Holy Spirit comes upon us. See, the first thing, Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, that happens at salvation. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you to be your guide, your teacher, your helper. Convict you of sin and lead you in the ways of righteousness. First Corinthians 3 puts it, puts it this way. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? It's this idea, Paul is writing this letter to Christians in a Christian church, and he's not saying, like, hey, some of you are God's temple. It's a statement, all of you are God's temple. So the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us at salvation. Second big thing the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit comes on us, which is always an infilling presence of the Holy Spirit with the supernatural power of God. The book of John is very focused on the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Luke Acts, and every time we see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Old Testament, it is always a coming upon in power. That the filling of the Spirit brings the power of God to fulfill God's mission in your life. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it goes on, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the two things the Holy Spirit does lives in us to be our guide and our helper. And it comes on us to equip us with the power of God to do what God's calling us to do. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. He comes on him with power. He gives him the power of God to fill the ministry God has given him. Second thing we notice though, Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. Second thing is this declaration. God says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. See, in our modern day, we aren't as familiar with the Bible as the Jews in that day would would have been. So every time I've read this in the past until two weeks ago when I was working on this message, I've read this as a declaration, hey, Jesus is my son, God says. Like, that's great. It's an identity statement. Great, amazing. But when I was reading it, when I was researching it, um, the the people I was reading highlighted that in the Jewish culture, they would have heard this statement not as just an identity statement, but as a direct quotation of Psalm 2. God is declaring Psalm 2 over Jesus. Why is that significant? Well, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that was written for for one of Israel's kings when they were crowned as king as a declaration of, look how great our king is. All the other kings are powerless. Our king is better than yours. Be careful, other nations. And it was written about a human king. But here, God co-opts that psalm and says, no, this is about Jesus. Jesus. And we see this psalm directly attributed to Jesus uh, four or five times in the Gospels. Once here, there's once in Acts where it's very clear, where the author of Acts, he writes and he's like, this is why Psalm 2 said this about Jesus. Like it's very clearly applied to Jesus. In Psalm 2, what it says, it, it, it speaks of how the nations of the world are kind of against God, how they've set themselves against God. And then it says this, verse 5. Then he, being God, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree of the Lord, the psalmist says. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God, here, as Jesus is baptized, he speaks and he declares, that king that Psalm 2 is praising, he is right here. Jesus is that king. And this is a crowning moment where God is declaring the nations belong to Jesus. Jesus is the king who has come. The nations should be afraid because Jesus holds all power and all authority. Through Jesus' baptism, it wasn't about repentance. It was about the declaration that Jesus is King. That his crowning ceremony was going to come just three years later through his death and resurrection on the cross. But you know what's fascinating is we have this great moment. God declares, Jesus is King. Gives him power by the Spirit. Verse 17, this is who Jesus is. This is my son, the beloved. Very next verse, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Notice that. Jesus was led by who? God, the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To be tested. You know, very often it's easy for us to fall into this mindset where when God calls us to do something, we just expect it's going to be easy. But there's this link throughout Scripture where when God calls us to do something, he never promises it's going to be easy. In fact, sometimes he leads us into places of difficulty. And so the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. It's the, he's this crowning moment. Jesus is king. Okay, Jesus, now you're going to suffer. And he leads him into the wilderness to test him. Not because God wants to destroy Jesus. Not because God doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. But because God wants to prove once and for all to the devil that he has no power over Jesus. And what we see in the wilderness as Jesus goes through these three temptations, and these three temptations line up exactly with what happened. The temptations that Adam and Eve fell into in the Garden of Eden. See, Genesis 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But in Genesis 2, God, he, he, Genesis 1, God creates humanity. He puts them on the earth. He, in Genesis 2, we see him take Adam and Eve as the archetypes, the the forerunners of humanity, and he places them in the garden. And he gives them this role of being his representatives, and he gives them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree of wisdom, or you will die. Genesis 3, serpent comes along. We believe the serpent is a reflection of Satan, even though Scripture doesn't explicitly say that. But the serpent comes along, comes to Eve, did God really tell you not to eat from any tree in the garden? Devil's twisting God's words. And then Eve comes responds, Well, no, he told us not to eat from that tree and not to even touch it. Because if we touch it, we will die. Again, God's words were, don't eat from that tree. And she's reinterpreting it. And the devil, this is my paraphrase of what happened. Devil's like, well, that's not true. God's a liar. He's just selfish. If you eat from that tree, you will become like him, and he doesn't want that for you. So it tells us, Genesis 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice the three things that tempt Adam and Eve. The tree was good for food. That means it would satisfy a bodily need. It's like I'm hungry. God said, don't eat from that tree, but I'm hungry and it's good for food, so why not? It was also a delight to the eyes. You know, that's kind of the difference between if God said, here's a salad bar, this is good for food, and here's a dessert bar, don't touch this. Both are good for food, but one is a delight to the eyes. Let me tell you, it's not the salad bar. In my opinion, you might love salad. And the third thing is that it was desired to make one wise which is a way of saying it was desired to elevate one's stature, to be better, to become better, to learn more, to know more, to be famous. Three temptations in the garden. It's the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Matthew 4 says, verse 2, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was famished. That is, every time I read that, I'm like, what an understatement. Longest fast I've ever done of food is three days. And I was, like, ready to die at the end of it. It was, love fasting, but not from food. Um, But then the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan, the tempter, comes along. It comes to Jesus and he says, hey, you're hungry. If you're the son of God, prove it. And notably, in the Greek text, the the Bible, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. In the Greek, the word that we translate as if can also be translated as since. And so the devil in this moment isn't saying, Hey, Jesus, I doubt you're actually the Son of God. He's saying, Hey, Jesus, because you're the Son of God, prove it. And Satan is coming along and he's reinterpreting what God had just said two verses earlier. Say, Jesus, since you're the Son of God, why are you suffering in the wilderness? You're hungry. You have power. The Holy Spirit is on you. You can do what you want, Jesus. There's these lovely stones. Just make them food. Your body's craving it. And Jesus, he sees this temptation. It's, a, it, 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 it's, it's the lust of the flesh. It's something that is satisfying. It's not necessarily wrong. It's not wrong for him to eat, but it's wrong for him to disobey God. And Jesus says, no. I will trust God and obey God even though I'm suffering for it. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they saw that the fruit was good for food and they ate. In the wilderness, Jesus saw these stones that he could easily turn into bread, but he said, no, I will trust God first. So the devil tries again, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city And placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Second temptation is about the pride of life. Again, Satan's not saying, hey, I doubt you're the son of God, so prove it to me. He's saying, since you're the son of God, Jesus, I know you have this amazing ministry that you're going to build up and God's going to do something cool in your life. That's great. Since that's all true, Jesus, throw yourself off this temple. Because think about it. If you throw yourself off this temple, you see that giant crowd down there, and you land among them without being hurt, everyone's going to believe in you, Jesus. Like this is a temptation of fame. This is a temptation of pride. This is a temptation of doing something the wrong way in order to achieve something God has already given you. Jesus, jump from this temple. Everyone will follow you because everyone likes a miracle worker. Everyone will see it and no one will doubt. And the devil actually even backs this one up in Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91. But Jesus, knowing that Satan is quoting this verse out of context, knowing that Psalm 91 is not, about, uh, it is not about people doing stupid things and throwing themselves off of buildings and God saving them, but it's about God saving his people when they're in trouble, he responds and he says, No. No. I will not Put God to the test. I will trust and obey God first. In The garden, Adam and Eve, they saw that it was desired to, be, to make them wise, to promote them. And they ate. In the wilderness, Jesus had this opportunity to promote himself. And he said, no, I will trust God in his ways. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. His third temptation is about the lust of the eyes, the desire of the eyes. The devil is saying, Jesus, hey, I know this is going to wreck your relationship with your father, but if you worship me, I will make you king. Notice Matthew 3 17, God has said he is king already, but Satan's like, hey, you're king, but you don't have all authority. Let me give it to you. Well, what did Jesus do on the cross? Well, according to Ephesians 1, through Jesus' death and resurrection, God was putting his power on display, and now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God with all authority, or over all authority, all power, all dominions, and all rulers. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Through the cross, Jesus took All authority. So, what is the devil doing in this moment? He's trying to give Jesus a shortcut. Hey, Jesus, God said you would be king, but clearly that's not entirely true yet. You might be king, but you have no power. Here, Jesus, let me supply the power. And Jesus responds, No, I will not compromise. I will not compromise. I will do things the way God tells me to. And through these acts, through his baptism, his temptation, Jesus is declaring to the world, I am king and nothing, not humanity's hatred of me, not the temptations of the devil, not the things that look good and are attractive and and look appealing to me, nothing in all of creation will stop me from achieving the goal and the mission God has given me. In these acts, Jesus is setting himself up. He's declaring himself to be king over the world. And he's saying once and for all to the devil, you are powerless in my presence. See, through this story, Jesus is being revealed as king. And what's really fascinating about this story is that it is not until Jesus is baptized and endures the temptations in the wilderness that his ministry begins. It's only five verses later, Matthew 4:17, that we see Jesus step onto the scene. And it says in in Luke's rendition of this, it says that Jesus filled with the spirit began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus's ministry began with a radical act of obedience, both in baptism and in temptation. And what I love about this is how from the start Jesus' heart towards God was always one of yes. God, whatever you say to me, yes, I will do it. Whatever you tell me to do, God, yes, I will do it. I will obey you and I will trust you even though it's going to be hard and even though there are things that I'm going to be tempted to do that might look attractive. God, I will do things your way. God, You want me to get baptized, even though everyone's looking at me being like, really? You? Baptized? Don't you know what baptism is about, Jesus? He's like, yes, I will do it. God, you want me to face down the devil in the wilderness, not eat for 40 days, and then be tempted with delicious loaves of bread? Okay, I'll do it, and I will resist the temptation. Every step of the way, Jesus, as he's starting his ministry, is declaring, God, yes, I will trust you and only you, and I will do things your way. See, the kingdom of God is dependent on our obedience. It's dependent on our yes it's dependent on our willingness to say yes to God and no to sin. A kingdom is both a kingdom of power and it's a kingdom of purity. Whereas we live the way Jesus calls us to live, he calls us to a higher standard of living. He brings us to the next level and he equips us with what we need to do what he's calling us to do. But the question is, are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to trust God and say yes to him no matter what? Now, for some of you, the yes might be something as simple as you've never made that decision to believe in Jesus. But you're feeling that tug on your heart. See, as Greg was saying earlier, God loves us so much, he would have died for one person. He would have died for you and only you. And maybe that yes is, you just need to make that decision. Say, yes, God, I will believe in you. But maybe for you, that yes is something a little bit more tangible. Maybe God's putting on your heart that there are people in your lives, your neighbors, that coworker that you don't really like. And he's saying to you, hey, just behind the scenes, will you pray for them? Will you pray a blessing over them even when they don't know it? Will you bless your enemies and pray for those who curse you? Will you pray for people? Maybe for some of us, God is just looking for us to be obedient. Say, yes, yes, I'll be a good neighbor. Yes, I'll shovel their driveway even though it's a lot of work and I hate the snow. Yes, I'll mow their grass in the summer. If you do that right now, nobody's going to love you. Yes, God, I'll serve them. Or might even be as simple as being a friend to somebody in need, praying for somebody, even if they don't believe in God. The question is, will you say yes? All of our yeses might be different. But will you say yes to God and trust him? Not just once, but will you make it a daily occurrence? Saying, God, I trust you whatever you want me to do, I will say yes. As you see, as we've talked about in previous weeks, God is a gentleman and he will never force himself on you. The kingdom of God is dependent on us because God has entrusted us with the mission of expanding his kingdom, but we will never expand his kingdom unless we are willing to say yes. So as we close... I just want us to take a moment and ask God this question. and Just say, God, what are you asking me to say yes to? You know, as a church, we believe that God is a good father and he wants to have a relationship with us. And part of that is that God speaks to us, that we can hear his voice, both in tangible ways and in intangible ways. but I just want us to take a moment here as we close to ask God this question. Just take a moment. If you're like me and you need to shut out distractions, close your eyes. We're going to take about 40 seconds and just ask God this question. Say, God, what are you asking me to say yes to? What are you calling me to do today to build your kingdom? God's voice will always be loving, will always glorify Jesus, and will always be in line with scripture. But God, what are you calling me to say yes to today? Let's just take a whatever God is saying, I'd encourage you to do it. Whether it's big or it's small, whether it's something huge that's uncomfortable and scary or it's something that you're like, oh yeah, I can do it. I encourage you this week to be intentional. Ask God daily, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to say yes to? be willing to take a risk, Be willing to trust him, to do what he's saying. Because if we're going to see the kingdom of God come and manifest in this city and in this province, it will start with our willingness to say yes. So Father God, I just, Lord, I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace, I thank you that we have this opportunity in this life to, to be loved by you and to love you, to have a relationship with you, God. But God, I thank you that you didn't create us just to have a relationship with us, but you created us, and you gave us a unique identity and a unique purpose. So God, I just pray that we would have the strength, and the courage this week to be looking for opportunities to say yes to you. That as we go to work and as we come home, as we spend time with family, as we go to the grocery store, as we do things that we normally do in our life, God, that we would do it with that focus of, God, what do you want me to do in this moment? And a willingness to say yes. And God, I thank you that as we have the courage to obey you and follow you and trust you, that you are going to do what we cannot. That you're going to change people's hearts, people's minds. You're going to give us open doors. There's going to be healing and deliverance that happens because of an outflow of your power through us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to fill us. God, we just say yes. We trust you. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, amen.